And this church attended 2000 to 2005. Wow, six years. Amazing. So he's a VEV veteran, alumni, all those good words. Welcome. So let's pray over him. God, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the power of your word in Marcus, working in him. What treasure you've been working in him. And we ask just for your, your peace, your blessing, your favor on him today, uh, that he would just be at home with us, Lord, as this has been home for him many years. May that, just, that sense just be so true and real today. Lord, as he shares, uh, just anoint him, anoint our ears to hear, and we ask you for that in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you. <laughs> now here I don't need to wear a microphone because I'm, or not holding it because I'm wearing it. God, the ultimate judge, the creator, is sometimes called the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Why, why pick this one guy, Abraham? Why was Abraham specially chosen by God? Last week, Gordy talked about how sometimes God picks someone, chooses someone, favors them, blesses them, calls them in order to be a blessing to many others. Not for themselves, but for others. When God revealed himself to Abraham and called him, he told him that his descendants would be a blessing to all nations. Did that ever happen? It did. But 42 generations later, 42 generations later, the Savior of this world, Jesus Christ, came God became human at Christmas. God became human and became the Savior of this world who would die for our sins to bring peace with God, to bring forgiveness of our sins. The complete fulfillment of this promise to Abraham took 42 generations. But it didn't take that long until you see the story already starting to fulfill itself. The promise starts to fulfill itself only three generations later in Joseph. Joseph, the great-grandson of Abraham, was used by God in an amazing way to bless nations. As a matter of fact, God uses him in a powerful way to save millions of lives from certain premature death. And being a part of God's people and God's plan, as we see in Joseph's story, doesn't mean that you will have a happy-go-lucky life. And so today we'll look at a small part of this story of Joseph, this, this journey that God had him on for him to become this savior of millions of people. I'd like to invite Kathleen now to come and read Genesis chapter 39. Joseph. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, brought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. The Lord was with that he prospered. And he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household, and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household and of all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptians because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except 
come to bed with me, but he refused. With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then did I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. One day he went into the house to attend his duties, and none of the household servants was inside. She caught him by his cloak and said, Come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. When she saw that he had left his cloak in her hand and had run out of the house, she called her household servants. Look, she said to them, this Hebrew has been brought to us to make sport of us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. And then when he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. She kept his cloak beside her until his master came home. Then she told him this story. That Hebrew slave you brought us came to me to make sport of me, but as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. When his master heard the story, his wife told him, saying, this is how your slave treated me. He burned with anger. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. But while Joseph was there in the prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison, and he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this story. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the, for the truth that's behind these words. The truth that is being taught to us today for our lives, empowering us to be your disciples and your witnesses in our world, in this city, Lord. So I pray, Father, that you speak to us through your spirit today in Jesus' name. Amen. So who is this Joseph? Yes, you all know him. But there's a good and a bad part about Joseph. What do you want to hear first? The bad part. The bad part. Well, I will start with the good part. Because then the bad part is easier to take. The good part is he was handsome, he was young, he was smart, he was a natural born leader. He had the whole package. Another good thing was he was the favorite son of his parents. Even though he had a lot of siblings, he was the favorite kid of his dad, his favorite son, the only son at this point when he was born, of his mom. The bad part is that he was a part of a polygamist family. Yes, think Bountiful BC. Growing up with ten half-brothers from altogether four, four different wives was not fun. And the brothers hated him because he was his dad's favorite. So he grows up with ten half-brothers in this big polygamist community, and he's being hated. He's hated by all his brothers. And he's not growing up in a fancy place, in a nice culture place that's comfortable. He's growing up in Bountiful, B.C. He's growing up in a small tribal community of Bedouins, of, of sheep farmers, no, nomads. It is not a nice place where he grows up. Think hot, dusty tents. No showers, no doctors, no schools, no comfort. Uh, Restaurants, no concerts, just a lot of sheep <laughs> and a lot of manure right outside those hot, dusty tents. That's where Joseph is from. And later on, when you see what's going on between him and Pharaoh 
and the family, you see that Pharaoh had a very low regard for the origins of Joseph. So here we have this young lad who's been going through a tough time. And you think after he'd been sold into slavery, God would give him a break. That now finally his dreams that were God-given would come to fruition, would come into reality. But no, the exact opposite happens. He's not being brought to a place of safety and honor. What was described in the dreams, he becomes a victim of, of human trafficking. He's being kidnapped. He's being shipped off to a rich country. And there he's being sold to a rich, powerful person. Joseph doesn't know at this point what's really going on. He doesn't see the big picture. He doesn't see what God is about to do through him. All that Joseph sees is difficulties, injustice, challenges, abuse. And here in this story, again, when you think he's in, in safety and in somewhat an okay place, again, he's faced with three tests. The first test is about sex. The second test is about truth and authenticity. And the third test, it's the hardest test, goes even deeper. First, he's being tested about sex. Joseph is young. He's physically attractive. At this point, he's probably about 20 years old. Okay? He is at the height of his physical attraction. His body is strong, no longer a teenager, just a young man. He's probably extremely good-looking, and his body is well-built, like the text says. In Egypt, he was bought not by any kind of small person who in society who may be allowed to or able to buy one slave. He's being bought. He was bought by the general of the Egyptian army. He comes to a center of power. He comes into a very important place. And there, he leaves such a positive impression that he's, you can tell he's moved into the house from being a labor slave into the house. There, he's being given more and more responsibility because of his natural ability to lead, to organize, to orchestrate, until he becomes the personal attendant to Potiphar. Now, the personal attendant of Potiphar is not just a butler. It's really his right-hand man. Joseph becomes the person that takes care of everything Potiphar owns other than the food he ate. So he wasn't a cook, but he organized and was in charge of everything else. So think more like a palace. Think of a household that includes many slaves, that includes agricultural production, that includes selling those products, includes preparing them for, the, for their own use, or uh, includes hosting events for Potiphar's friends and his social circles. So he's, he's, being, he's overseeing production, sales, um, preparing of food, hosting events. He's, he's taking care of all the other slaves. He's really taking care of a mid-sized business. Okay? Now, he's not 40 when he becomes the VP of operations here. He's 20 years old. That is incredible. And he did not have an undergraduate in business from Harvard. He comes from this backward country where there's no, very little education. Okay? He may have been able to read, but he was not highly educated at this point. So you have this uneducated man, incredibly gifted, rises to power very early on. And then... Potiphar's wife takes notice of him. And she wants to sleep with him. But if you look at the text, she's not having an affair with him because she likes him, because she loves him, because Potiphar is always away and has his own mistresses and she now finally finds this kind-hearted man. No. If you look at the Hebrew words... She's commanding him to have sex with her. She's saying, sex now, slave. That's what she is saying. 
What's going on here? She's not just being unfaithful to her husband, but she misuses the power that she has. She uses power here, wanting to use it to get what she wants, to serve herself. And Joseph, he uses the power that he has, really the only power that he has here to set personal boundaries, he uses it to bless a master that enslaved him, to bless a culture and a society that is taking advantage of him. Joseph here already is the first fulfillment of the promise of God to Abraham to bless nations. And God does it not through a preacher, not through a prophet, not through anything other than a young businessman. God takes a young businessman to start to bless the nations. Joseph is taking the power that he has and he's using it to bless others. He takes power, but he's not taken by it. He has power, he uses power, but he's not used by it. Augustine wrote a famous book called The City of God. And there he says that in every human city, there are really two cities. The earthly city and the heavenly city. With earthly citizens and and heavenly citizens. And the supreme motive, he says, of the citizens of heaven is the love of God. And the supreme motive of the citizens of the earth, of the earthly city, is love of self. And you know what the practical difference is? The practical difference between the citizens of heaven, the citizens of the earthly city, is how they use power. The citizens citizens of the city of heaven are the very best citizens of the earthly city, of, of the normal city, because of how they use their power. Everywhere they go in their practical life, they use power to serve others not themselves. The citizens of the city of heaven use their power to serve others and to bless others. Now that is not easy. It is incredibly hard to use the power you have to serve others. Let me give you an example. When when we moved to Calgary four years ago, I had the privilege of of working for a man who had gained quite a bit of power. He had been a pastor, and then he started a business, and that business grew so much that he ended up, while I was working there, the business was listed among the top 100 fastest-growing companies in Canada. That's how successful he was with his company. And through his business, he gained wealth, He gained status. He gained power over all his employees and other people. But instead of of using his power for himself, he used it to bless others. Most people in his situation would, would start to look how they can use that power. They would start to buy the biggest house they could. They would start to look for ways how they can make their lives more comfortable and themselves more important. He didn't. Instead of buying the biggest house possible he could, he still, to this day, lives in a small house in a not-so-great part of the city. As a matter of fact, his house is so small that because his kids are still living with him while they go to university, he and his wife moved to the unfinished basement so the kids could have their own rooms. He started a nonprofit, supports missionaries, and gives a lot of money away. To me, this is a wonderful example of someone who uses their power to bless others and not themselves. Now, how does Joseph answer? Having sex with you will be a wicked thing and a sin. 
Why does Joseph think that sleeping with her would be a wicked thing? Of course, because she's married. But if we look at the Bible, sleeping with Potiphar's wife would not have been a sin just because she was married to Potiphar, but because she's not married to him. If you want a grasp of the biblical sex ethic, uh, one of the best places to go is 1 Corinthians 6, which is really a play on this Joseph story. There Paul says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. And again, I read verse 17 there. It says, the two will become one flesh. The principle here is not adultery per se. Yes, it is wrong, but what is looked at here is that Sex is designated to create one flesh between two people. What does that mean, to create one flesh? When Paul quotes Genesis 2 here, he says that through intercourse, two shall become one flesh. He says that sex is a highly esteemed act of total self-commitment. It involves the whole person not just the body. In other words, you must not only give yourself physically, but completely. Sex is, way, is God's way created to say to someone else, I completely and exclusively belong to you in every aspect of my being, socially, legally, economically, spiritually, and if physical vulnerability and oneness is an expression of whole life vulnerability and oneness, it deepens trust. It becomes a blessing, a wonderful, powerful thing. But if you have sex outside of marriage, you're saying, I want physical oneness without having wholeness, whole life oneness. Let's give ourselves physically to each other, but let's not give ourselves totally, with every aspect of our lives to one another. What you're saying, if you have sex outside of marriage, is I want you, but I don't want to entrust myself fully to you. The Bible is saying, integrate your body with your whole life. If you've given your whole life to someone, then give your body too. If you don't give your whole life, then don't give your body. Don't split these things apart. Sex is God's invention for whole life entrustment. Sex without self-entrustment is dissonant. It becomes destructive. It hurts yourself and others. That is why Joseph recoils from having sex with Potiphar's wife here knowing that he would pay a big price. As a slave, refusing his master's command? Now to address two possible answers here. If you talk about biblical sex ethic in Vancouver, you have to be ready for some reactions. Some people might say, well, you're making me feel guilty. You're being judgmental. Well, I'm not trying to make you feel guilty or judging you. I'm trying to make you think differently about sex. I know this cuts against everything that's being said to us all the time through the media, the news, and everything else. But I'd like you to be open-minded to this idea of the Bible that says integrate your whole life, your body, and the rest of your life. 
Another reaction could be to say, this is ridiculous. This is backwards. It's offensive. How could you say such a thing? And most people say, don't take your religion and elevate it over other religions or my own view. Let's focus on the things that every religion shares, not these kind of offensive things, but the things they share. Well, let me tell you, here this is one of the few things that all religions share. They don't share a whole lot, but they share this, that you should never have sex outside of whole life commitment. So how are you going to do, how are you going to go ahead and say, I want to dismiss that? Don't dismiss the one thing all religions share. Now there's a second test that Joseph has to deal with in the house of Potiphar. And it has to do with authenticity and truth. Look at how Joseph actually responds to Potiphar's wife. If you look at it, you see there's two parts of his answers. There's two arguments. The first one is an obvious one. And the second one is his ultimate argument. The first is obvious, it's ethical, it's reasonable. He tells Potiphar's wife, hey, how could I have sex with you? You're the wife of the man who's been sponsoring me, who's been believing in me, promoting me. He's given me to charge of everything he owns. How could I, how could I sleep with you? It's an obvious ethical argument that she can probably accept fairly easily. But then he moves on to his ultimate reason why he's rejecting her. After the obvious, easily acceptable answer, he goes on. He goes on and tells her why he really resists her. The ultimate reason why he's not sleeping with her is his faith in God. Why would he do that? Why would he go and talk about morality and religion? He's already in trouble for refusing her. Now he brings up morality and religion? She may have been, she, may, she might have been able to accept his rejection if it had been based on loyalty towards Potiphar. But instead of arguing in a reasonable way, he goes on and talks about his ultimate reason why he's refusing her. It's no longer a question of sentiments and personal preference or his feelings. It now becomes a thing of ultimate truth. He is making a truth claim. Joseph instead of downplaying the situation, instead of laughing it off or being quiet while he really is refusing, he comes right out. He tells this unbelieving woman that what she's proposing to him is an evil thing in the eyes of God. You know what the typical answer to this would be in our city? Don't say it. Don't swear one thing people would say after they were swearing, uh, swore at you, they would say you're being self-righteous. But is he being self-righteous? I don't think so. Instead of, he's not saying I'm morally superior to you. He's pointing to something that's higher than him. He's actually being humble by saying that it's not his decision. That is humility to say, you know what? There's someone above us. There's someone that is the ultimate authority. It's not about me. It's not about how I feel towards Potiphar. It's not about my righteousness towards Potiphar or gratefulness. It's about what the ultimate truth of this, of this universe has revealed about adultery that it's wrong and a sin. Whether it's in Joseph's context or in our context, people don't want to hear this. People don't want to hear ultimate truth claims. Nobody wants to hear that there's a moral authority that goes beyond them. 
They just don't like that, no matter whether it was with Joseph or with us today. So what, what do we do in these situations? What do you do when you're in a situation where you say no to something because of your moral convictions? We can either laugh it off, we can be quiet about it, we can be inauthentic about our true motivation, or we can be authentic and share the truth, share the reason behind our value, values and, and arguments and ethical standards. I believe that we can only be salt and light in this world if we're willing to share the ultimate reasons behind our actions. Even if it's very, very hard even if it's disliked, even if people will give you negative feedback and there will be negative consequences. I believe that as Christians, we're called to share the ultimate values behind our values. I believe that we're called to give a humble, gentle answer to our decisions that goes beyond rational argument where we share the ultimate argument behind our actions. I believe that it is the loving thing to do. In a society that fights and rejects ultimate truth, it is the loving thing to share that there is an ultimate truth that informs your actions and your life. Far too often, and I, I see that in my own life, we're quiet about what really motivates us, what really drives us, what really tells us to say no to certain things. Far too often, we keep that blessing of having and knowing an ultimate truth to ourselves. The third test that Joseph has to deal with goes even deeper. The third test that Joseph has to deal with has to do with his inner life. The first, the story seems to just deal with about sex and promiscuity and unfaithfulness. And then on the second level, it has to do with truth and authenticity. But, but the third layer talks about hope and despair. It talks about hope and despair in Joseph's life. Joseph makes all the right choices. He's being a good guy. He's willing to, to take, to pay the consequence, to pay the price for his decision to not sleep with her. He's being righteous and he loses it all. After having been enslaved, and sold into slavery, trafficked into, trafficked into another nation. He's being thrown in jail again, accused of being a rapist. And he stays in jail for about two years. Yes, again, in jail, we heard it, he's doing well. But he's being incarcerated for at least two years. Can you imagine the inner life of Joseph? Can you imagine, even just compared to your own challenges, can you imagine the disappointment and anger and bitterness that Joseph was faced with when he stared at these prison walls? And yet in the beginning and the end of the story, it says what? It says, the Lord was with Joseph. Visibly everything goes wrong. But in reality, behind the scenes, God is pulling the strings. Here in this part of Genesis, we, we see no, no more miracles. We, there is no more voices. No appearances of God. No angels. It's quiet. And yet here, it is really the part of this story where God is the most active. God does the most work. He's most at work here when it's quiet. 
and you don't see God. Timothy Keller, in one of his sermons, says, the point of this story here is that with God, silence is not absence. Hiddenness is not impotence. When God is the most hidden, sometimes he's working the most for us. You might look at your life right now and draw the conclusion that God has benched you. He's no longer interested in you. You're out. He's mad at you. The favor of God is gone. If you are in a tough tough stretch, you're going through a difficult time, you're in the middle of this story. The present suffering and challenges that you're facing are not an indicator of how God feels towards you or what he has in store for you. God is not done with you and will never be done with you. As long as you want God in your life, he will be there in your life. He will be present in your life. Twice we are told here that God is present with Joseph. Why? Because when we're going through through difficult times, we tend to conclude that God is no longer present in our lives. We're so quick to fall into hopelessness and despair and depression when we're faced with suffering and disappointment and challenges and things are going wrong. If you are in Christ, you are forever a part of the people of his presence. If you are in Christ, you are a part of the people of his presence. God is with you. And don't confuse this type of presence with the uh, omnipresence of God. C.S. Lewis writes in, in his book, Miracles, God is present in many different modes, not present in matter as he is with humans, not present in all humans as in some, not present in any other human as in Jesus. For example, he is present in the lives of believers, with the righteous and with those who suffer, in a way that he's not present with unbelievers. As a child of God, you have access to the same kind of presence of God that Joseph had. When it says at the end of chapter 39, the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did, That end of the story is true for you too. That is the end of your story. You might look at your life right now and don't not see that. But you don't know the end of your story. We don't have your book. We don't have your story written anywhere. You're in the middle of your story. And so you may be able, you may be sent to jail right now. You may be sent to slavery right now. You may fail Huge challenges and disappointment in your life right now. But that is not the end of the story. Because you are a part of the people of his presence. He is with you. And he will be with you at the end of your story. And with his presence, his blessings too. The Bible over and over again shows that with God's presence, there come blessings. Blessings in your whole life. Blessings in the spiritual. Blessings in the material. Blessings in the physical. Blessings in the social. Blessings in every aspect of your life. Think about this. We are the people of his presence. We are never alone or pushed aside. The Lord is with you with his blessed presence wherever you go. Psalm 139 says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my laying down and you're acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in, behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. 
Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's high, I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in shoal, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. The blessings of, your pre- of his presence. The blessings of his presence are with you till the end of your story. You might be waiting for Christmas. You may be waiting for his presence to be visible again among us and in our lives. But he is with you. Amen. I was thinking of uh, when uh, Marcus talked about the book that's not been written about your life, that verse in Revelation that talks about, and the books were opened. And then another book was written, uh, opened called the Book of Life. And then the psalm, I thought of that before he quoted from Psalm 139. I think that's one of the few other places in Scripture that actually talks about God writing a book about us, writing our, our story in the book. All, all my days were written in your book. And that's going to be a day when we're going to read each other's stories. And we're going to go, wow. And uh, we get to read Joseph's story. But every one of us are Joseph. Every one of us, in a unique way, it's, the story is being written in our lives. And I thought of that God, God was, it says, you know, specifically God was with Joseph. And yet how easily it would have been with Joseph as with us to not be aware of it. That I believe that Joseph had practices that cultivated awareness. That in, in some ways we could, if I can twist it, twist scripture a little bit, that, God, that Joseph was with God. That he was attentive to God. That it was a relationship. That that's what drove him when he said no to Potiphar's wife. Uh, there's just somebody I love a little better than you. I love a little bit better than myself. A little bit better than my own gratification. There's just somebody I care about a little bit more than all this. It was love. So if you're in the jail, if you're in slave labor, waiting for that call from Pharaoh, can I exhort you to continue to dream? Continue to be alert to opportunities to love and serve to the lowest of the low. I once heard John Dawson say it was about one day between being the lowest with the dregs of society and being the prince of Egypt for Joseph. It was just like that. And I believe that there is something about our memory that Joseph remembered where he came from that prepared him for rulership. I think rulership was his biggest test. I really do. I think that was his biggest test. The prison was hard. Potiphar's wife was hard. The slave labor was hard. What, he, what happened to his brothers was hard. But I think it was all preparing him for his biggest test. And uh, <clears throat> I think the biggest problem with the North American Western Church is we haven't known how to handle God's blessing. We haven't known what to do with his favor. And we think his blessing and favor is his endorsement of what we do. And it's not. 
And that's where character comes. It's why it's so important to embrace the darkness, embrace the stillness, embrace the silence, drink it. Because that's soul shaping and preparing you. So if you're in the jail, if you're in the prison, if you're in the, in the slave labor, where you're doing stuff and you go, what does this have to do with my dream? Uh, God is with you. So let him teach you how to be present to that, to be attentive to that. The desert. Thank you, Marcus. One, one thing I love about what I've heard today is, is he lives that. Marcus lives that. Uh, he's, he's consistent with, I'm in proximity to be able to uh, uh, testify to that. So thank you. And I love Merlin's story, Merlin Bartel, the story of the epic vineyard in Cal epic uh, roofing in Calgary. I've slept, by the way, in his house. They kicked one of the kids out of their bed so I could sleep there. I kind of felt bad about it, but, but they're just, yeah, they really live that out. It's beautiful. So I'd like you to stand. I want to bless you. We have a few minutes if you need some prayer. Welcome you to come. I'm sure Marcus would be willing to pray with you. The Lord has just spoken to you. I just feel that there is some, some, uh, some entrapment in the area of emotions and soul ties and sexuality. And I totally 100% support everything Marcus said. And I've said that so many times in counseling rooms. Is sex outside of the covenant of marriage is saying to somebody, I will give you but my body, but not my life. I'll give you my body, but not my heart. And that's why it gets so confusing. And it gets all messed up. It's a gift from God to celebrate his love and his relationship with us and covenant with one another. I just feel strongly that um, the Lord would like to help us when we are under attack with what I think I hear the Holy Spirit saying, knee-jerk reaction or like the tendency just to get frustrated and just react. So it's amazing when Marcus was preaching, you, you know, he just brought it so vivid that Joseph was able to say no and be in total f focus and I mean just I'm amazed that I just because I I have no idea but I got asked to read this and then this week I, I encountered a vicious attack that I've never had before in my whole entire teaching career it was un unbelievable and I really wanted to react in anger and frustration and have an ultimatum of it's either this person or me and this is I'm not going to work for this school anymore and I just felt like I had to really have the Lord and other people pray me through so that I could go back and get a broken heart for the family, the student, for my school. So if that is applying to any of you when you are in a situation, and if you aren't in it now, it's probably going to come, where you get unjustly accused, or you get totally misunderstood, or you get sidelined, and you want to get frustrated, and you want to get angry. Maybe you want to drink something, take, take, don't take drugs, that's for sure. <laughs> it's just too much problem with fentanyl and carfentanyl. But I just want to release that to you guys to get some prayer that that applies to you. I'm just going to be very, very quick because everybody's got things to do. Yeah, very quick. Marcus, thank you for that. It really spoke to me. And so just in, real, in really, really brief, uh, just a very quick testimony. After seven months of all kinds of stuff, um, it finally broke off. I had a lot of support from the church, a lot of exhortation, a lot of blessings, and a lot of prayer. And uh, Marcus, I just really, really want to testify that during that seven-month journey, I knew, I knew God was with me, but I cried many, many times in, in bed, and, and I just had to claim the word of God and say, 
the Bible says, you will never leave me or forsake me. I just have to trust. I'm trusting. And I would scream at the top of my lungs and say, Lord, but you know it doesn't feel like it. You know I don't feel like that, but I'm going to claim your word, and you're just going to have to shift me. I'm going to speak it. I'm going to speak it. I'm going to speak it. I don't feel it. I'm going to speak it out, and it's going to break in the spiritual realm. And, you know, seven months I went through that, and uh, just very, very quickly, the final poof happened last night where um, Jacob came into my room every five minutes, and he was preaching. And he was going back and forth between Daniel and Revelation. Daniel and Revelation, I'm going, oh my gosh, you're 13 years old and you're preaching at a level of somebody that's 30. Where did this come from? And I was so awed. And, and something happened to the whole household, to my son, to myself, and I just feel like freedom, freedom right now. And thank you. And I got a job. I got a job. Full time, working with Spirit of the Children, daytime, Spirit of the Children's Society, better pay, awesome team. I've never had two Aboriginal managers that are solid Christians in my entire life. So it's God doing that again in my life. So thank you. Yeah, let's give the Lord a shout. That's good. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Aldona. Thank you. So beautiful. All right. Stand again, if you can. Let me bless you. And... Um, Let's, uh, if you need prayer and you have children to sign out, uh, just uh, extend grace to our workers and go get your kids and then have somebody help uh, watch them while you get prayer just, just because our workers are, 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 are so awesome and I want to bless them and uh, set, set those boundaries for them. But uh, I want to give you an Advent blessing. It says, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will spring up one who will arise to rule over the nations, and him the Gentiles will, or the nations, will hope. So, V-E-V, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit this week. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. God bless you.